0: to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Anyway, I'm glad you guys are here. You, you can see here we're jumping back into our study of Mark. We took a pause on Mark uh, during the month of January so we could be reminded of some of our vision and what our, what our church is called to and some of the distinctives of our church. Hopefully that series, that time, was a blessing for you guys. If you missed some of that, I would... Really encourage you to jump on the app or, or jump on iTunes and find the podcast and listen to those messages. That's something uh, that I think is really cool for us as a body to come around that and be unified in what we think, um, our body is collectively called to. But today we're jumping back into Mark and I am stoked for this. We are in Mark chapter two today. If you want to, if you want to get ahead of the game and get turned there, um, If, if, you, if you guys recall, what, I, what I'd like to do is give us just a quick kind of reintroduction to Mark since we've we've been on break for, for several weeks. Um, but the thing is this, we, we've been in Mark since the fall, and this has been one of my favorite times in the Word with you guys since I've been at Red Tree. I, I tend toward the, the narrative aspects of Scripture. The stories in the Bible are what helped me fall in love with the Scripture and fall in love with Jesus. And so, to have an opportunity to come together as a church family and walk through the story of Jesus's life and his work as as told to us by by Mark it's just such a privilege it's been really good for my heart hopefully it has been for you guys as well we're, we're going to be in Mark 2 today we're going to be starting uh, in verse 18 of chapter 2 uh, but before we jump into that let me do a quick refresher for us so the first thing we want to talk about is this um, if you guys recall, we gave a very specific methodology for how we're going to study Mark in this setting. Now, that doesn't speak into how you guys should study Mark. That's just what we're going to do in this setting. In fact, we encourage you guys to, to study Mark on your own, in your family, in your family devotional, as we're working through it with the church, because you're going to approach the text differently, and the Spirit's going to illuminate different aspects to you as you study it on your own And the stuff we pull out. I mean, we're we're talking about you know chunks of the scripture at a time, and the reality is, in this kind of setting, we can only really pull out one or two points from that to really discuss. And the reality is, there are infinite things the Spirit reveals from His Word every time you engage it. And so, we strongly encourage you guys to be in Mark alongside what's going on on their Sunday morning gathering. So we talked about the way we're going to approach Mark as we study it is we want to do our best to let Mark speak for himself. And what I mean by that is this for most of us, if we've grown up in church or spent a lot of time in church, we tend to think of the Gospels systematically, or, or we tend to think about the unity of the Gospels. And what's meant by that is each we have four testimonies to the life and work of Jesus, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of those stories tells about the life, the person, the work, the message of Jesus from a unique perspective right Matthew was was one of Jesus's 12 disciples he was a strict observing Jew uh, in part because of his own story of betraying the Jewish people as a tax collector right you have marks telling of the story which is which is handed down from the apostle Peter's perspective it's much quicker telling of the story it's more designed for the gentile church and for the church under persecution you have Luke's telling of the story which is much more, it's the closest one we have to a history, uh, than, than, than less of a biography, more of a history. It, it focuses on certain details that the other gospel writers leave out. It also puts a larger emphasis on social justice ministry and the role of women within the church than the other three gospels do. And then you have John's gospel, which is the latest gospel written after the other three were already well circulated amongst the church. And John's gospel is much more theological in nature than the other three. He's less concerned with telling the story than he is with establishing the doctrine of the gospel. So you have these four different perspectives on the person, work, life of Jesus. And what we tend to do is we unify them because each one tells similar or the same stories from different perspectives. And so we tend to mash them together because most of us have heard most of these stories from most of these perspectives. And so when you read Mark talking about the temptation of Jesus, you fill in all these blanks from Matthew's telling and Luke's telling, and you create the story. And there is nothing wrong with that, right? Like that's why God gave us the fourfold testimony of the Gospels. But for our purposes here, what we thought would be beneficial is let's let Mark speak for itself for a moment. And the reason, specifically with Mark, is that. Mark is out of the four Gospels the one that is most necessary to be read on its own terms. Mark was the first one written, and Mark is the one that, that had the least amount of influence from, from outside writers. And, and on top of that, as, as, as it's become known the more Mark has been researched, Mark's Mark's intelligence, Mark's genius is not found in his writing. It's found in his construction, in his editing. Because Mark tells the story very simplistically. Mark tells the story very quickly in short bursts and lots of scenes that are interconnected with each other. And where you really begin to see the genius, the thoughtfulness, the the, the inspiration in Mark's telling of the story is the way he chooses to weave it together. The way the stories play off each other. Theologians and scholars call this Markan Sandwiches. If you guys remember this. It's this idea that Mark tells these short, quick stories that are all interconnected because the thought, the assumption was that Mark would be read out loud in its totality to an audience, and so you would hear the entire book spoken to you from beginning to end. Not that you would be sitting down and reading it and studying it. And so the thought was that he put these short stories together so that as you're hearing them, you begin to interpret the stories through the lens of each other. The stories that touch each other. There's, there's parts in Mark where he'll start a story, stop it, tell another one, and then finish the first story with the idea of you melding the themes, the ideas together in your head. So because of that, we thought, man, let's take a season and let's walk through Mark from Mark's perspective. Let's see what unique aspects, unique unique presentations of the person of Jesus we see in the way Mark told his story. And I don't know about you guys, but so far for me, this has been an awesome time. It's, it's really cool to see kind of the unique Christological focus that Mark puts in his writing. Because obviously, right, in the telling of the Gospels, the, the Gospel writers are intending to make the message of Jesus known to the people that they're giving these writings to. And, and most often, like if you read in Matthew or you read in Luke, and, and, and to a lesser extent in John, but when you read in those two, you see this this. Deep emphasis on Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah is not what you thought it was. It's Jesus, and Mark tells the exact same story, but his emphasis seems to be more on Jesus is God, and God is the Messiah, and 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 you see that throughout Mark's writing, this unique presentation of the person of Jesus. That obviously, all the gospels speak of the deity of Jesus, and all the gospels speak of Jesus as Messiah, but. The emphasis is nuanced enough that it. I think it's beneficial to give our time and our attention to it. So, what we've had in Mark up to this point is that essentially uh, we start with the ministry of John. Jesus is already an adult when he steps into the scene. Mark gets going quickly; it jumps straight into the action. You see Jesus a few verses into chapter one, and he's immediately being baptized, being driven off into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted and to fast, and then starting his ministry. Just. Bang, 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 really quick. And he gets into it. And we, we get in the very, in about halfway through chapter one we get Mark's summation of Jesus' message, which is found in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. This is Jesus' message. The kingdom is here. The time is now. Repent. Believe. Come on, let's do this. The way Mark tells of Jesus' message, there's this emphasis on immediacy. There's this emphasis on now. Don't think. Don't wait. Don't weigh it. The kingdom is now now, repent, believe, come with Me. And so that's how the story goes. Jesus immediately starts preaching that message and doing miracles. And really quickly, a crowd gathers around Him. The more He does these miracles, the more He preaches this message. God is here. God is doing something new. He's doing something powerful. Be a part of it. Huge crowds start to gather around Jesus. And the thing gets crazier and crazier. And Jesus' teachings and His miracles start escalating in their pointedness. We go from seeing Jesus healing people who are sick with fevers to seeing Jesus declaring the unclean clean and healing lepers, right? And all of a sudden, He's not just a traveling rabbi who's, who's doing these miracle workers and these miracles and, and declaring the kingdom. All of a sudden he's speaking into the pointed religious debates of his day and he's kind of poking at the established religious structure and tradition. And when we step into chapter two where we're at now, we get this series of stories that basically let you know how Mark is going to end. In Mark chapter 2, you get this quick succession of stories, and in each one, Jesus challenges the authority of the established religious system, and then basically wins the challenge by use of supernatural miracles, so that he can't be argued with. He, You see him, he, he cleanses the leper, and that's kind of this transition point. He heals a paralyzed man in front of a group of people and some religious leaders, but before he heals him, he declares his sins forgiven. And then he heals him, and that starts this whole kebab in the group where people go, you, who the heck are you? You can't forgive sins. Only God forgives sins. And Jesus is like, really? Well, check this out. Boom, he's healed. What are you going to do about that? And that kind of shuts the conversation down, right? That Jesus puts these strikes, he, he pokes at the established religious tradition, and then when they push back on Him, He does a miracle and goes, well, how are you going to argue with that? Which really, how would you argue with that? Right? Like, if a guy came in and you're like, you're a heretic, and he's like, I just raised the dead dude. You'd be like, well... I, Okay, <laughs> which is essentially what happens. This escalates and in the last story, Jesse led us on on our last sermon of last year, Jesse led us through the story where Jesus calls Matthew right calls Levi to be one of his followers. Now this is one of the most pointed expressions of jesus 's Bucking the traditional system of of, of these these first century Jewish people. So he goes to this tax collector, this traitor to his people, and he calls him to be one of his followers. The tax collector drops what he's doing and follows Jesus and then has this big celebration at his home, right, where he invites Jesus and his followers to come to his house and to party with him. And everyone gets ticked and they go, What the heck, Jesus? You're a rabbi. You're claiming to be part of the kingdom of God. You're doing miracles and you're having a party with these terrible people. And Jesus' response is, hey, Jesus, God came for sinners, not the well. Doctors heal the sick, not the healthy. What are you going to do about it? And then he goes on partying. Uh, and that's, that's a tense picture. That's a tense image because the reality is that question is totally valid, Right? Like the the fact that Jesus didn't just call a tax collector, he called Levi. He called a specific tax collector. If you guys remember back to this, so so Jesus called his first disciples on on the shore on the beach of the Sea of Galilee at Capernaum, right? That's where he called uh, Peter and, and James and John and Andrew and those guys. And he comes back to that same place and meets Levi the tax collector who has a booth set up, who runs his business on that same beach. Which means he's the tax collector for those people, right? He's the the extortionist. He's the traitor who's abusing and ripping off those people that Jesus is ministering to. The, the, the The miraculous catch of fish that Jesus provides for Peter... When he, when he calls him to be his disciple, would have been taxed by Levi, right? That's crazy. Jesus calls that Levi and then takes his followers to go have a party at his house that's funded by his extortion of Jesus' followers. Right? Matthew's rich and wealthy and able to host a huge party because he's stealing from God's people because he's a terrible person and and Jesus calls him to be his followers, Wald, Peter and Andrew and James and John are right there. Can you imagine that level of frustration when Peter's like, "Man, this is a great party, isn't it?" and Peter's like, "Yeah, this is a great party." I wonder how he paid for it. And he's like thinking about those nights when he like only gave his kids a half portion of dinner because of Matthew's extortion of his family, right? So when the religious leaders come to him and they go, what the heck, Jesus? Why are you partying with these people? That's a valid question. We thought you were here to, to celebrate the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom of God. You've been telling people to repent and believe and drop what they're doing and follow you and you're, you're hanging out with our abusers. What's the deal? And Jesus' response to that is, I don't hate the people you hate, Sorry. I actually love the people you hate. That's that's a heavy message. The reality is if you read Mark 2, the ending of Mark is already very clear. He is bucking the system in a way that is untenable. He is challenging the status quo in a way that will only have one ending. Right? He's publicly challenging and refuting the religious leaders of the day and giving them no opportunity to actually prove him wrong, they're going to kill him. They're going to get him out of the way. Because that's what happens. That's what happens when you come in and you buck the system. They're, they're, they're going to do what they need to do to retain their power. So that's where we pick up the story. In Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18, it says this, Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, him being Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? This is the Word of the Lord. So we have this teaching here that's that's relatively well-known, right? Jesus, Jesus essentially he gets this challenge on this established religious practice of fasting. Why aren't you doing what everyone else does? And He responds with three quick little parables. These are the first parables Mark gives us. And it's funny because He gives us no explanation of them. But, but Jesus responds to these challenges with parables, which is going to be kind of a norm for how Jesus engages in in public dialogue and those things. But it's interesting to note here the way Mark sets up the story. This is immediately following Jesus' calling of Matthew and His celebration, His living it up at Matthew's house with all the sinners. Immediately after that, it lets you know, well now, the Pharisees' disciples and John the Baptist's disciples, they were fasting. So the people come to Jesus and they're like, why are you partying while they fast? <laughs> right? And, and, and what's interesting here is we have a transition. The, the first two stories before this have been the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees coming down from Jerusalem to challenge Jesus' teaching to affirm whether or not he's orthodox. But whatever has happened here in this section of the story is upsetting enough that just the crowds that have been following Jesus kind of come to Him and go, hey, what's the deal with this? Why, why, are, you, why are you doing this? And Jesus responds with these three quick parables. A wedding, some old clothes being patched, and wine and wineskins. Right? That's, that's Jesus' response to these people. I, I, want us, I want us to walk through a couple things here, uh, just a couple like historical contextual pieces that I think we could easily miss. And then I think that'll, that'll bring us to, I think, a clearer picture of what Jesus is saying and what Mark intends. And then we'll, 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 that'll wrap us around to Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians. I think it'll be good. But essentially, what we want to talk about here is the context of why the question mattered, and then some context behind the actual parables Jesus uses. Some Historical context. So the first thing is this whole thing starts over fasting, right? The the disciples of the rabbis of the day, whether they're Pharisaical rabbis or whether they're John the Baptist's crew, the disciples of those rabbis fasted and they were fasting in this moment, right? This moment where Jesus and his disciples are partying, they're fasting. And so the people walk up and they go, Hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you do what they do? Now, the question there is actually really good for us to ponder for a second. Because the reality of it is, when it comes down to it, this passage is not about fasting. I mean, the, the fasting is the context for the conflict between Jesus and the established like, religious system of His day. But the question is not about fasting. Fasting is in and of itself a good spiritual discipline that you should all partake in. Really, like you should all partake in it. Like Jesus is not setting aside a beneficial spiritual practice. So really quick, let let me let me answer the question what is fasting and then what was meant by fasting in this Statement. So in the simplest form, fasting is a spiritual discipline where you deny yourself something you need or something you enjoy that you might more fully depend on and experience the person of God in your life. Right? You deny yourself something you need or something you enjoy that you might experience greater dependence on God. Biblically speaking, fasting is always from food. That's that's the most normal way to fast. That's the biblical way to fast. You don't eat or drink anything except water. For a set amount of time, you you purposefully deny yourself something you need that you might experience dependence on God. Jesus fasted for a long amount of time, right? And he has the famous line where, where Satan comes to him in his hunger and says, Hey, why don't you use your God powers and make some food? And Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from God. Right? Essentially saying, yes, I need food, but, but I can depend on God. He can be my greater sustenance. I don't need to eat. This is, this is what fasting is. Denying yourself and experiencing dependence purposefully. And it is a powerful spiritual discipline. In, uh, and, and I would be I would really serious when I say this unless there's like a medical reason why you cannot fast from food, you should do this. It's a powerful spiritual discipline. It should be a regular part of your engagement of the person of God of the person of Jesus because it forces you to grow in dependence. Now, if you can't, if there are medical reasons you can't, there are all sorts of other beautiful ways to engage in fasting. Deny yourself things you enjoy. Set aside, set aside things that are pleasurable to you and experience greater dependence on Jesus. But I say that up front because we're not going to really talk about that today. Because it's not really the issue. See, what, what what's happening here is, biblically speaking, God only actually commanded a couple fasts. So if you go back to Leviticus 16, and if you read through maybe like Zechariah, you'll find that God only commanded one fast of His people in Torah law, and that's once a year on the Day of Atonement that people are to observe a 24-hour fast from sundown to sundown as they prepare themselves to basically mourn their sinfulness, to, to acknowledge their, their desperation, their uncleanness, their need before God. They're to fast for 24 hours. After the exile, uh, the elders of the Jewish people instituted four other annual fasts that were ways of memorializing the loss that happened in the exile. The loss of the northern kingdom and, and the ten lost tribes. The loss of Jerusalem. The loss of the temple. The loss of worship. The loss of their independence. They mourned those things through through set like calendar days of fasting. Beyond that, uh, the Jewish people would call fasts uh, circumstantially. right? If there was something bad that happened, if someone died, when, when Miriam died in the wilderness, the Jewish people fasted. When Aaron died, they fasted as part of their mourning. So they could call fasting as a way of mourning a loss. They could call a fast amongst the people if they were worried about something in the future. There was an impending attack from a foreign nation or things like that. They might call these communal fasts, but they weren't scheduled. They were circumstantial. Beyond that, individuals were encouraged to participate in fasts as part of vows to God or part of free will offerings. A Jewish person who who wants to just celebrate that God has blessed him that year might take a vow that he would be a Nazarite for so many months, or he might vow that he was going to offer some free will offerings, and he might fast in preparation of that ceremony. These were things that were done, uh, they were encouraged to be done on a personal level as someone saw fit to honor and glorify God. That's the way the Old Testament describes fasting for God's people. But by the time Jesus steps on the scene, it has become something entirely different. You see, The Pharisaical sect was one of the largest religious sects in in the Jewish day. And what they basically built their whole teaching around was this idea that the exile happened as punishment for Israel's sin. God had removed His blessing from His people because they didn't follow His law. And He had promised He would restore them through the prophets, through a Messiah. And if Israel wanted God to fulfill that promise, they needed to give themselves fully to the obedience to the law, to the way of living that God had prescribed. And so the Pharisees said, listen, we're experiencing God's wrath right now because of our sinfulness and our disobedience. We need to become a people who are devoted to the Scripture, who are devoted to experience, who are devoted to righteous living. So we all need to do that. And so the Pharisees would travel around and they would teach, and they actually they began to develop more strict interpretations of the law because they started to ask the question, man, if, if we're obeying these laws, but God's still not doing it, He's still not bringing the Messiah, what's, what's the deal? And so they thought, oh, we must, we must not be understanding these laws correctly. Because remember, by Jesus' day, these laws were thousands of years old. This is the same, like the, the Pharisees were doing the same work in interpreting the Torah cultural differences, linguistic differences, as we do when we try and interpret the New Testament, right? So maybe we're not understanding these things right, so they build extra laws, they call them hedge laws, or they basically said, man, if the law says don't do this, we'll say don't do this, so that we don't even come close to that, that way there's not even a possibility that we could break those laws by accident. And they start to enforce this kind of extra spiritual discipline upon the people around them, saying you, it's not enough to just obey what the law says. We need to go over and above and beyond because we have to convince God to send the Messiah. So as part of that, they started instituting personal fasts not out of a sense of devotion or excitement or thankfulness, but to say we need to fast as individuals to mourn how sinful our nation is and how they refuse to repent and to live under God's law. So we should all be fasting regularly to, to show that, that we're so sorrowful that, that the Jews around us might realize, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm causing this by my unrighteous living, so I should join with my Pharisaical brothers in, in mourning and fasting and obeying the law. And so the Pharisees would teach their disciples to fast twice a week, on Mondays and on Thursdays. Now, these fasts weren't the same as the 24-hour sundown-to-sundown sundown fast. They, they would essentially, they would essentially fast from sun up to sun down. And so the way they would do that, since it was twice a week, is they would get up early and have their breakfast before the sun came up, and then they would skip lunch, and then they would have dinner after the sun went down. But so you know, whatever. They were just skipping lunch. Let's be honest. But but still, they did this twice a week, and and it became this this public spectacle where some of these well known Pharisaical leaders, on it was a day that they would fast. They would like put on their grungy dirty clothes and they would not comb their hair and they would like wipe soot on their face and they would walk through the city being like it's okay I'm fasting because you're all so sinful don't help me I'm doing this because you're terrible this is is how how this this culture of fasting began to develop, you actually see in Matthew six Jesus publicly rebuking this understanding of spirituality, where he says, "Listen, when you fast, get up and take a shower, wash your hair, look presentable, and don 't tell anyone you 're fasting right he, he attacks this cultural understanding because Essentially, what the Pharisees were doing at that point, it had transitioned from, man, we're mourning how sinful our nation is to let me show my neighbors how much more godly I am than them by walking around telling them that I'm suffering because they're terrible. Right? So this is the kind of fasting that is normal amongst the rabbis and the disciples of the day. And to this, the people come to Jesus at Levi's house, at a party, and they say, why aren't you fasting? Why aren't you fasting? Why are you guys partying? Look look at them out there. They look so sad and pitiful. Why aren't you guys doing that? And Jesus' response is these three parables. A wedding, repairing some clothes, and wineskins. And I think there's some, some stuff there that is necessary for us. The first thing is the wedding, right? So Jesus' initial response is He goes, you don't fast at a wedding when you're when you're with the bridegroom. That's that's when you celebrate. You wouldn't fast then; that'd be weird. You fast later. So so they're not going to fast right now because they're with the bridegroom. But essentially, the analogy Jesus makes is he says, "Listen, if you were at a wedding feast and you were one of the groomsmen, you wouldn't put on your dirty clothes and get disheveled and be sorrowful and refuse to eat at the party. You would celebrate. You would celebrate the party. It would be." weirdly inappropriate to show up at your friend's wedding morning and fasting. Right? Now, again, this has some cultural weight that we miss because of how the Jews of this day celebrated a wedding feast. A wedding feast in this culture was essentially their cultural days off. It was their version of a snow day or a civic holiday. When there was a wedding feast in your area, everything stopped. You had this massive potluck, and for seven days, everyone took off school and work, and they just partied at someone's house. It was crazy. In fact, the cultural expectation of the day, if you were a rabbi, no matter your renown, no matter your office, whether you were on the Sanhedrin or whether you were some podunk country rabbi, if a wedding feast happened in the village you were in, you stopped classes, stopped lessons, and you went to the party with your disciples and you refused to let them call you teacher while you were at the party. Instead, you were an equal guest and friend with them and the rabbis were expected to dance and feast and sit at the table with their students, even though in any other setting that would have been horribly disrespectful. This is, this is the wedding feast of the day. It's a week-long party where everyone brings all their extra food and wine, everyone brings their instruments, and you just celebrate for a week. And at the end of it, when the bridegroom is done, whether he's out of money or out of wine or out of time and just really wants to go be with his wife on his honeymoon... He goes, Hey, everybody, party's done. Thanks. See ya. And they all leave and go back to life as normal. So Jesus invokes this image and he just goes, man, you wouldn't fast at a party if you were one of the groomsmen. That would be ridiculous. And then he adds this line where he goes, but when the groomsman is taken away, then, then they will fast, which is a whole weird line in and of itself. It's a weird line because the groomsman wouldn't be taken away. He was the one who ended the party. He wouldn't be pulled out of it. And so it, it, it kind of was a scandalous description of a wedding. But I, I mean, to be totally honest, probably really, really encouraging for Mark's audience, right? The, the, hurtled and, and the huddled and hurting church being persecuted by Nero to hear that, hey, uh, sometime the party will be over and you will be sad and you will fast. That probably was really encouraging to them. But but besides that piece, I want you to catch something really interesting in, in, in Jesus' choice to use wedding imagery. And, and the thing of it is this. Jesus, essentially, when it comes down to it, is, is talking about how this religious structure doesn't work because the Messiah is here. Right? Why would you mourn at the wedding? Why would they fast if the purpose of the Pharisees' fasting was to say, oh Lord, please, we're sorry for sinning. Send your Messiah. If the Messiah's there, you wouldn't keep doing it. You would start partying, right? So Jesus is essentially making that that point. But the fact that He chooses to use the wedding imagery is striking because In the Old Testament, in the Scripture that these people had available to them, there were lots of images used for the Messiah. A servant, a shepherd, a king, a warrior. But there was one image in the Old Testament that is never used for the Messiah, and that's a bridegroom. The image of the bridegroom in the Old Testament is reserved for one person, God, and His relationship to His people. And so when Jesus picks this imagery and says, why would you mourn? Why would you fast when the bridegroom is with you? This is a striking image. In one way, it's, it's, a, it's a veiled like reference to Jesus' own deity. But beyond that, Jesus is connecting the idea that the Messiah is God. The Messiah that you're fasting and longing for is the God of your people, and He is here and He is amongst you, so why would you fast? You should celebrate. And then he goes on and he gives these two images, right? If you get a tear in your clothes and you sew a patch on it, but the patch is new cloth that has not been shrunk, the first time you wash the clothes, the patch will shrink. It'll pull the stitches out. It'll rip, make the rip worse. It'll ruin the garment and ruin the patch. If you have wine that you need to ferment, it wasn't grape juice. If you have wine you need to ferment, and you put it in old wine skins, when it ferments, it will burst and ruin both. The idea here is the way the Jews made their wine is they would use goat skins. This is really gross. They would skin the goat whole and use his whole pelt, and they would use um, wax and string and different things to seal that into a big bladder, and they would put, um, they, they would actually, before they sealed it, they would rub it down with a mixture of salt and some, some different like Fermenting agents, like into the actual pelt of the of the goat, they'd seal it up, beeswax, string, all those different things. Pour your grape juice in there, let it sit, and as it ferments, it would swell up. His goat skin, I guess, is really stretchy. I don't know, <laughs> but it would swell up, and when it reached a certain size, you knew the wine was ready, and you could, you know, pop it open and pour it out and, and have your party. Uh, and the idea is you couldn't put new wine, grape juice, back into an old used wine skin for two reasons. Uh, first off, the, 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 the actual fermenting agent would be mostly used up. That skin had, had served its purpose. But even if that weren't the case, if you put the new wine in there, as it started to ferment naturally and as it swelled up, that skin had already been swelled to its maximum capacity and it would split. It would ruin the skin and it would ruin the wine. You would lose it. You could not use an old wineskin for new wine. You could use it for water. You could use it for milk. You could use it for other things. You could not use it to ferment wine again. You need a new wineskin for new wine. You just do. You need it. So Jesus gives these three images at the same time, right? You wouldn't mourn if you were at the wedding. That would be inappropriate. You wouldn't sew a new patch onto an old piece of cloth. It would ruin the garment. You wouldn't put new wine into an old wineskin. It would ruin the wineskin. What, what Jesus is essentially telling these, these people who are listening to them is you guys are missing it. The, the, the frame of reference you have for, for understanding what God is doing, it's just too old. It won't work. These old categories won't work. The kingdom of God is bigger than you think, and you simply cannot use a mosaic framework to understand what God is doing now. Jesus is challenging the establishment of these people's very identity. He's he's pushing in and just saying, listen, you think this is how God works, but it just isn't. It just isn't. You, you think that's the way it is, but you ha- you're, you're caught up in these traditions, these ideas, you're, you're locked into them, and they're just not accurate. And they're not sufficient. If you keep holding on to these things, you're going to miss it. This is, this is what He's telling the people. You're going to miss what God is doing. Think of Jesus' message up to this point. The kingdom is here. Repent, believe, follow. Don't think about it. Don't analyze it. Don't wait. Do it now. The kingdom is here. And he tells these people, listen, you are going to miss it. If you stay stuck in this, you're going to miss it. There's no time for you to try and use your old framework. Set it aside. There's something new going on think about that. That the question they ask of Jesus makes so much sense. If you were in their shoes, would you actually have been like, yeah, Jesus, yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. New wine, new wine skins. I don't think so. I think we would have really struggled with it because we're church people. We're used to traditions. We're used to having the in on how God works. And when someone stands up and says, hey guys, you're all wrong, God does things different, we usually go, "Eh, you're probably a heretic. So when Jesus shows up and he just says, hey listen, everything you know is wrong, that's hard to hear. That's hard to wrap your head around. Beloved, if I'm being totally honest, I would have been the Pharisee. I would have. I would have heard this new rabbi, I would have seen his miracles, and I would have gone, this is awesome. And then I would have heard his teaching and been like, that's not orthodox. That's not how we do it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm taking church history right now in seminary, and we just read about um, Luther's famous speech at the Diet of Worms. I know that sounds really, that's awesome. But in his speech, he's, he's, he's just been excommunicated, and he's facing possible uh, execution from the Holy Roman Emperor, and he has this famous speech, you can look it up, where he essentially says, disprove me from Scripture. Show me I'm wrong. Pull out chapter and verse, show me what I, where I'm wrong, and I will recant everything I said. But unless you can do that, I'm going to stand on the Word of God and stand on my conscience. Boom! And then he walks out of the room, right? And we read that as Protestants, and we're like, heck yes! You go, Luther! Sola Scriptura! Woo! And that's where we end the story. (laughs) But the reality is, he walks out of the room, storms out, because that's kind of how Luther operated, and the cardinal of the day, who was overseeing the proceeding, comes up and gives a formal response from the church. And I'm not going to lie, it's a good response. He walks up and he goes, listen everybody, this monk from the middle of nowhere that no one's heard of that's been a professor at a three-year-old seminary for a year and a half just stood up and told us that he read the Bible better than every pope, bishop, and cardinal for the last 1,500 years. He just stood up. One guy from the middle of nowhere that you've never heard of just stood up and said every authority on church, every, every person who's been studying the Scripture since Jesus was here is wrong and he's right. Come on. And then he goes, listen, he tells us we need to disprove him from Scripture. Of course we could disprove him from Scripture. They couldn't. But, but he says, of course we could disprove him from Scripture. But if we stopped what we were doing and disproved every crazy monk who demanded that we tell him why he's wrong and we're right, we wouldn't have the time or resources to send missionaries to the new world and to Japan and to China. That's ridiculous. We're not going to do that. The church has been here for 1,500 years. It's going to be here a lot longer than Luther. Mic drop, right? Here's the problem with that. That's a good speech. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) If I'm in that room, I'm not going to lie. I'd be like, yeah. He is a crazy from nowhere. He is probably a heretic. Maybe I'm just too easily swayed. But the reality is, that's the safe route. Right? The cardinal basically leaned on those people's understanding of orthodoxy and their trust of church history and just said, listen, who the heck is this guy? He's telling us everything we know is wrong. We should all do something different. But come on. It's been working for 1,500 years since Jesus was here. Unbroken secession. Apostle to apostle to bishop to pope. Come on. This guy from Germany knows better than that? But we stand on the other side of history and we go, thankfully, he did. Think about that. If Jesus stands up and goes, we don't fast, of course we don't fast. The Messiah is our... that's stupid. Why would you do that? That would be hard to hear. It would be hard to hear because it goes against hundreds and hundreds of years of church tradition and orthodoxy and understanding. That's, that's a weighty thing. And that's something we should not cast aside lightly. It's really easy to demonize the Pharisees of Jesus' day and and to look at the religious people of His day and just think of them as crazy. It's easy to do that. But the reality is they thought Jesus was crazy. Right? He was pushing on their, their very worldview. Their worldview that was built on the sacred revealed Word of God. That's Heavy. So what the heck do we do with that? Right? Because you can take that to an extreme example and go, oh, so Joseph Smith was right. God is doing something new. Okay. No, obviously not. What do we actually do with that? I, I have a couple thoughts on this, beloved, and I think, I think it'll be good for us. And it's simply this. You must throw away the old. You must. You must. If we are to be in this kingdom that Jesus is advancing, the old ways of engaging the world simply will not do. The ways of your flesh, the ways of your pride, the ways of your understanding, the ways that you have been taught by culture and life that this is how the world works will not do. The world we live in is steeped in corruption and curse. And the narrative you have been taught by experience from the minute you were born is not the right narrative. The narrative that says you must seek your own benefit, you must stand up on your own and be self-sufficient and be independent and make your own way, that simply will not do. It is not the way The kingdom of God operates. The kingdom of God is new and it is different and it is other. And to accept the kingdom is to reject the world. To accept the kingdom is to reject the false narrative of a cursed and dying world and to fall wholly at the feet of our Jesus and say, I desperately need you. I don't understand this. It's crazy. It's weird. But I know I need it. I need to be something new. Beloved, the kingdom of God is something new. Paul says in Second Corinthians, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. For even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Beloved, there is a new life to be found in the kingdom of God. And the old way of understanding the world will not do. Jesus is not a band-aid that can be sewn onto your worldview to fix your problems. He is not. If you attempt to take Jesus and fit Him over the things you don't like about your life to go, I have a pretty good worldview, but there's a couple broken parts and I wish this relationship was fixed and I wish I didn't do this sin and I wish I had more of this and I'm going to stamp Jesus over that to try and fix it, that new patch will tear away from the old cloth and it will destroy it. You cannot do that. You want Christ? You give Him everything. You put on a new garment. Paul said, you take off the old flesh, the dead man. You cast it away as an old unneeded garment and you put on Christ. There is no patching yourself into the kingdom. It is a new experience. Beloved, you cannot take Jesus and pour Him into your worldview. Paul says Jesus poured Himself out for our benefit. You cannot pour Him into your existing construct for the world and think that the Gospel will work in you and change you and and fix what is wrong with you. Beloved, the reality is when wine ferments, it stretches that skin to the bursting point. If you pour Jesus into your existing worldview and you say, please fix this, He will break it. Because He's not content to fit into your capsule for Him. Jesus demands something new of you. Cast away the old. New wine is for new wineskins. Beloved, let us cast off the old of this world. The things that that cling to us, that seem so real, the idols we chase after, the self worth we seek to find through success and relationships and jobs, the sins that seem so habitual we cannot get away from them, the love of self that permeates everything we do, the fear of death and destruction and loss of control, everything in us that we have been told from birth this is how you succeed in the world. It will not work. Cast it away. It is garbage. It is not worth your time. It is not worth your energy. Beloved, in Christ, you are a new creation. You are a new wineskin, a new garment. Allow the new wine to be poured into you. Come on. Here's what it is, guys. You You don't mourn at a wedding for a very simple reason. It's inappropriate. That's a time to celebrate. That's a time for joy. You don't fast when you're Jesus' disciple because you're with Jesus. Because the Messiah is here. Because the love of God is insane and boundless and indescribable and more powerful than you can ever imagine or hope or dare. When you are with Christ, you do not fast. You celebrate. You celebrate. You praise. You worship. You revel in it. Beloved, because of the person and work and life of Jesus Christ, that is available to you. The Spirit of God dwells in the believer. When we talk about new wine and new wineskins, we're talking about people made into living temples with the very person of God dwelling within them, making them new creations from the inside out, setting aside the things of the old, cursed, and broken world and creating new people in His own likeness. Beloved, that is what you are called to. And i got news for you. That is worthy of joy and celebration. That is worthy of joy. We are with Jesus. The very Spirit of God is with His children. So do not fast. Do not hold on to the old things. Do not strive to to keep your hands clenched to old ways of understanding the world that are not lasting and will fade away. Give yourself fully to the kingdom. Cast aside your sins and your old self. Give yourself fully to Jesus. Give yourself fully to Him find the joy and the celebration that comes from being at the wedding with the bridegroom. There's a pastor, H.B. Uh, Charles, he, he, in, 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 a, in a book he wrote, he talks about this idea of when he prays, when he prays concerning vision and God's plan for him, he starts with this phrase of, God, you already have my yes. Just let me know what the question is. This, this is what we're talking about. When we talk about casting aside the old, taking on the new, taking off the old coat and putting on the new, putting new wine in a new wineskin, celebrating the wedding. That is what we're talking about. Surrender to Jesus. Jesus, you already have my yes. Just tell me what the question is. Just tell me the question. It's already yes, I promise. You have me. You have all of me. Beloved, let us give ourselves fully to our God. Whatever He asks of us, whatever He calls us to, I guarantee you as wine fermenting in a skin it will stretch you to your limits but you will find joy in it you will find celebration in the kingdom you will find abundant life in the kingdom it is worth the cost so here's what we're going to do i'm going to pray and then we're going to take communion together we're going to celebrate the person and work of jesus i invite you to take a few moments collect yourself, pray, spend time with Jesus. And as you come up to take these elements in a few moments, remember this. There is no need to mourn when you are with the bridegroom at the wedding. That is a time to celebrate. So as you take these elements and you reflect on Jesus' body broken for you and His blood poured out for you, beloved, may we celebrate the goodness of our Jesus. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit RedTreeChurch.com for more information.